Good morning, Desert Springs. You may be seated. If I have not met you before, my name is Alex Schroeder. I serve on staff here as the pastor overseeing our discipleship ministries. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to join me in John chapter 1. As it's the Christmas season, I, like many of you, I imagine, have begun dabbling in Christmas music again. Uh, I'm not a music listener. I get made fun of a lot by Drew and others on staff about how little music I listen to, but at this time of the year, I can't help but uh, turn it on. And uh, recently, I've discovered a new Christmas song uh, called That's Christmas to Me. It's a fine song. I'm not recommending it, uh, but it's there. It's a song. Um, And I bring it up because I think this song does what happened or it, it rightly depicts what happens to a lot of people uh, as we think about the Christmas season. If you listen to it, it plainly states that the stuff of Christmas that the writer gets jazzed about is the festivities and the traditions. The lyrics mention the warm fireplace, presents under the beautiful tree, children playing in snow, kissing under the mistletoe and things like that. And I get it. Like, I love everything about Christmas. But yet, I hear a song like this and think, what a blessing that Christians have, that Christmas is far more than just the nostalgic, heartwarming traditions. It isn't bad to love the traditions. I'm not demonizing that. But The season is nothing without the Christ that we celebrate, who he is, what happened at Christmas, and what he came to do. So I think the real amazing thing about Christmas for Christians is that we get the substance and we get everything else thrown in too. We can get excited about hot chocolate around a fire precisely because Christ came. And our prayer as we enter this new Advent teaching series is that our hearts would not be drawn to the trappings of the season, but to the real substance. Who is the Christ and what did he come to do? That's the focus of our sermon series. Behold, we will consider John 1 for the next four weeks. And in John 1, we'll consider the various titles that John is used to describe the Christ who came, the Word, the light, the glory, and the Lamb. And we've titled it Behold, mainly because we don't just want to grow in our knowledge. We want to behold by faith. We don't want our hearts slightly warmed. We want our hearts driven to a red-hot fervor and joy not because of wreaths or twinkle lights, but because the Christ has come. So this morning, we will behold the word. We have three short verses. It's only 39 words in total. So it's not much, it's not long, but anticipate diving headlong into the depths of theology. These three short verses are going to take us into deep places, but we don't jump in to speculate 
or to pontificate, we'd jump in so that our hearts would prostrate. We don't come to study to grow in knowledge, but we come and study God's word so that we would worship him more. That's our goal this morning. So join me in reading John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'll read to verse 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This morning we will consider four points. Our first point is the eternal word, the eternal word. As we begin, though, I should say something about this title that John uses, the word. For those of us that have been in the church a while, we've grown familiar with John's prologue, that Jesus is the word. But we do need to acknowledge that this is a strange title. John actually doesn't use it much in his gospel, and none of the other gospels ever describe Jesus this way. And let me tell you, this title has stood out to scholars. It is hotly debated and defended. Tons of ink have been spilled over people trying to get at why did John pick this to describe Jesus. Some have suggested it has origins in Greek philosophy, looking back to men like Plato, who used this word a lot. Others point to an Old Testament Jewish background where the word of God is personified at times. Others have suggested it's a blend of both, which was happening in Jesus' day. We have a whole record of Jews in Alexandria that blended together Greek philosophy and Jewish background thinking. So, which is it? Well, I think the most important way The most important question is not what influenced John, but what does John say about the word? Let's not get caught up in the background. He gives us some information about him, and let's focus on what John said. But I do think it's fascinating, and there's something here. We won't talk about it much, but it's fascinating in John's writing of this gospel that he used a word that had a broad cultural meaning to begin his gospel, perhaps to pique their interest and certainly to challenge their worldview and correct their understanding about how the world worked. John gives us a clue in chapter 1, verse 18. We'll see this in a couple weeks, so we won't spend a ton of time here. But notice in chapter 1, verse 18, he tells us what the Word has come to do. He has made him known. The Word is an act of revelation. It came, Jesus came to reveal truth about God. And this makes sense. If one of the things in the background of John's writing of this is Old Testament and the Jewish understanding, this is profound. Throughout the Old Testament, the word of the Lord would come to prophets, and it would come bringing a message from God to his people, and now John says the word has come. Jesus is like that old word, but greater. It's not just verbal content, it's a person. Jesus is like that and greater. Jesus is the final, the authoritative, and the ultimate word of God that has come. As Judy read for us from Hebrews 1, 
long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The ultimate, the final, authoritative declaration and revealing act of God is not prophets, but it's the prophet, the Christ, and the apostolic witness to him. Some have suggested that different world religions are like blind men who fell into a pit. And in the pit is an elephant. And each of these blind men is touching a different part of the elephant. And they're describing what's in front of them. And as they're describing what they're feeling, the, the, the parable here is that they're, they're doing their best to describe what religion is. And each of them is kind of right, but they lack perspective of the whole. Maybe you've heard this, this word picture before. That illustration fails to realize that God is a revealing God. God speaks about himself. And the revelation of God does not leave us as blind men feeling around doing our best. The word has come to make him known and we are no longer blind. We can step back with clear eyesight and say, that's an elephant. And now we can go to those other blind men and say what the truth really is. So praise God that at Christmas, the word reveals. The word speaks about and shows us the character of God and his purposes in creation. This is a revelatory word. And as our first point is, this word is eternal. Eternal. We see this in that first phrase, don't we? In the beginning was the word. Each of the four Gospels, these historical, biographical, and theological portraits of Jesus begin differently. Matthew begins with Jesus' ancestry. Mark jumps right into his ministry of, at his baptism. Luke begins with orderly accounts of his birth. And John begins theologically. He goes back farther than those other gospels, not to his birth, not to prophecy about him, not even to the first ancestor in his lineage. John points us all the way back to the beginning. To the beginning of what? To the beginning of beginnings. He's beckoning us to consider a world that we know nothing about, where it isn't even accurate to call it a world. This is existence prior to matter. This is existence before time itself. In the beginning. Does that phrase sound familiar to you? John is certainly alluding to that first phrase in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is drawing our minds back there to back then. And he tells us that the word was in the beginning. Just as God was in the beginning, the word was there. And this is an audacious statement to make. For the remainder of this book, Jesus, the word, will be described as a man from Nazareth. Precisely because he was a man from Nazareth. The people that watched him would have looked at him and said, you look like any one of us. You're a man like us. You get cut, you bleed like us. 
And yet John says, that man was at the beginning of beginnings. And John doubles down here. There's multiple strands in this first verse that make us see exactly what he's saying about Jesus. First, it's that word was. Was. This is a unique Greek word. It's a unique tense. In English, we have past, present, and future. The Greek language has multiple tenses. This tense is not so worried about when an action started or that an action finished. It's simply observing that an action is going on. It's been going on without reference to when it started, without reference to when it ends. It is going. And so John's point is that the word was. Not trying to tie down when did the word start or when will it end, but that it is wasing. Even in the beginning, the beginning of all beginnings, the word was. It didn't have a wasing day when it started. This word is the eternal wuzzer. It's always been wasing. John's telling us something significant with a small verb. But it's even more significant when we look to verse 3. He uses a different word, a different verb, to describe things that have been created. He is contrasting the uncreated wuzzer and the created things in existence. And he does this again in John 8. When that famous phrase, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, it's those same two words again. Clearly, this is John trying to show there are created things and then uncreated things. And he's using two different words to describe these two different planes of existence. And we would be foolish to confuse them. So don't be mistaken. Jesus was not in the beginning just happening to show up there or being created but prior to the other beginnings. Now, this is an internal word without beginning, without origination. So as we enter this Christmas season, behold what is unimaginable. Behold what's uncategorizable. Behold what you can't even fathom Existence prior to all that is. A being without being created. This is the word. The eternal word. Let's consider our second point. The distinct word. The second phrase John says is in the word was with God. The word was with God. Simply put, the Word and God are not the same person. They're not blended, they're with. The Word was with God. You can be alone, but you cannot be with yourself. You are yourself. But to be with implies distinction. And there is a distinction between the eternal Word and the eternal God. There's distinction, but there's not division. This word with is regularly used to describe a relationship of intimacy, of two persons relating to one another. So the word and God are distinct, but not divided. They're differentiated, but not different. 
This phrase pushes us to dwell on the inner workings of an eternal, perfect relationship. Our minds are stretched. The Word is eternally distinct from the Father, yet eternally united in relationship to the Father. This is amazing. This is something to behold, to meditate on, to dwell on, and to humbly confess that we cannot wrap our minds around it entirely. What a mystery. Our third point, we have an eternal word and a distinct word, but we also have a divine word. That third phrase in verse 1 and the word was God. Let's just acknowledge briefly the complexity of what John is saying and the simplicity by which he says it. These three short phrases have the same subject, the word. They all use the same verb, was. And they're all short and pithy. Not that I expect any of you to go find a Greek Bible and try and read it, but John 1.1 is one of the first passages that beginning Greek students will read because it's so simple. John is known for being a simple writer with limited vocabulary, but yet these truths we will chew on for eternity. Eternally existing, eternally distinct, eternally God. The word is distinct and yet simultaneously he is God. He is not the Father, but he's not less than the Father. J.C. Ryle, an English pastor, commented on these verses and said this, all illustrations of such subjects halt and fail. Here at any rate, it is better to believe than to attempt to explain. What a mysterious reality, and yet, how beautiful, how true. I love this insightful comment that D.A. Carson made. After reading that first phrase, in the beginning was the word, he says this, we must suppose that either the word was with God or the word was God. But the truth is it's both. <laughs> In one sentence with three short phrases, our minds are stretched and then blown. The word is both. Eternally God, eternally distinct, eternally one. Perhaps some of you will be frustrated by this complexity of God. Or you're annoyed that Christians seem to hold what might seem contradictory. But let me just submit to you that if God is real, we should expect that he might be complicated to us. I don't know the mind of an ant, but I would imagine an ant with whatever consciousness it has is quite confused by you. And if that level and that distinction of being creates complexity to an ant, how much an infinite divide between creature and uncreated. And yet none of that gets rid of the complexity, but I hope it drives us to humility and awe 
and worship at the God as he has revealed himself to us. And if you've ever wondered, where in the world did Christians come up with this stuff? This trinity, this unity in three. Well, it's not just because tradition arrived at it. It's not just because a group of people fought about it in the the 300s. This is what the Bible teaches. This is because God has made this known to us. This is who the Word is and who the Word has always been. This is who God is. This is the God we worship. So breaking down these clauses to summarize, the Word is eternal in His origin. The Word is distinct in His person, and the Word is equal to the Father in His nature. Since we've arrived here at this high Christology, and we're even bumping up against some Trinitarian theology, let's just acknowledge that there are many ways we can err in what we believe about Christ and the Trinity. There are many denominations and groups that have erred in this, even in recent days. So let me highlight four ways and try and show some modern examples to show why the Trinity is important and where there's distinctions and for us to be clear of how we need to be guarded with what we believe about the Trinity. So here's four ways we can subvert what John 1.1 is teaching us about the Son. I'll say these all and then we'll go through them and I'll repeat it for you. First, we can reject the deity of the word entirely. We can reject the deity of the word. Second, we can reject the distinction of the persons. I'll unpack all of this, I promise. Third, we can reject the unity of the persons. And finally, we can reject the eternality of the word. First, Where do we see the deity of the word rejected? We see this in a statement like, Jesus is a good spiritual man, and he was an influential religious teacher. This is likely the most common errant view of Christ today. John 1.1 will not stand for a view that he is just a good spiritual teacher. No, the word was God. But some groups even heighten it a little bit. They say he was not just a good man, but maybe even a prophet. This would be the view held by Islam today, who does not subscribe deity to Christ, but says he was certainly a man of God. But even saying Jesus was a man of God falls far short to what the Bible teaches us about Christ. Perhaps that's you, this morning. You've come along, and you're not angry at Jesus. You're not against his teaching, but you wouldn't say he's God. You might even say that the world would be a better place if we all just listened to Jesus and loved people. But don't overlook the fact that there is a document in front of you that is more historically verified than any other historical document about an ancient person in that world. And that this document is historically linked to a witness uh, that walked alongside this man. And that that document claims that he is the eternal divine word. 
Don't forget, too, that this eyewitness, this author John, didn't become a king. He wasn't given power because of what he was saying about Christ. Do you know what happened to him? He got exiled to die alone on an island because of this belief. And that was after watching all of his other religious comrades, the disciples, die by other gruesome means, like beatings, stonings, getting being beheaded and stabbed. Three of them were crucified. If this was all a fabrication of these early disciples, they sure protected it to their grave. We have to wrestle with what do we do when an eyewitness died for a view like this. So we can reject the deity of the Son. The second way we can change this is we can reject the distinction of the persons. Historically, this is called Sabellianism, which is a big word. Another way that it's often called is modalism. This is a view that's held today by oneness Pentecostals. They believe in the oneness of God. They remove and deny the distinction of persons. Frankly, they would have a hard time explaining the word was with God. They would say instead that God has eternally existed but has manifested himself in different forms or modes. So at times he was the father and then he became the son. And yet they would not be able to say that the Son, the Word, was with the Father. This is the second way. The third way is you can reject the unity of the persons. This would result in tritheism. You don't see them as a one being, but you say that there's three beings. This is what would be held by Mormonism today. Mormons believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet they would articulate that these are distinct beings that all have the same will. And that might sound really close, but there is a difference between saying the Trinity is three beings versus saying it's one being with three persons. And so you can fall short of this by rejecting the deity of the Son, rejecting the distinction of the persons, or rejecting the unity. And there's a final way. You can reject the eternality of the word. I'll dwell on this one because one of the, view, one of the groups that holds this view uses John 1 to support their position. Maybe you've heard this argument. Historically, this is called Arianism. Today, it's manifest in the Jehovah's Witness. They reject the eternality of the Son, claiming instead that Christ was the first created being. He's preeminent, but he's not eternal. And they reject this because they read this phrase, and the word was God, and they have a different interpretation of this than we do. Here's what they would say. I'll give you their argument first. They would suggest that in the original language, there is not an article in front of the word God, which is true. They would say, since there's not an article, we should supply an indefinite article. An indefinite article is the word a. So they would translate this phrase, and the word was a God. 
They would then go to argue that the point that John is making is that Christ was not God eternal, but that he was a God-like person. Maybe you've talked to Jehovah's Witness before as they've come to your door and heard these arguments. I know we've gotten calls at our church before from groups that try to make these arguments with me on the phone. Those are always fun. Um, Let me dwell on why I think this is not the right way to handle this. First, context. If John believed that Christ was a created being, we would expect that he would do a lot more to try and differentiate this, right? I tried to give a really clear argument for these differences in verbs of the created things and the uncreated things. I think John, at best, if his point was that Christ was God-like, is confusing or misleading, if that's really what he's trying to get at, that these, if this view was correct. Another reason I think this is not a good view is there's a Greek word for God-like that's used three times in our New Testament. So it wasn't, the apostles were not unaware of this word. They certainly, John could have used that, and he chose not to. A third reason is that this isn't how Greek works. We have numerous examples of times where a verb or I'm sorry, where a noun lacks an article, and yet we ought not supply the indefinite article A in front of it. That would be a misreading of it. A great example is in John chapter 1. Look with me in John chapter 1, verse 49. Nathanael says this about Jesus. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In that verse, before the word king, there is no article. And yet it wouldn't make sense for, John, for Nathaniel to say, you are king-like of Israel. It renders the grammar illogical. This is an over-reading of how Greek works. And finally, I think this is another good argument. The way Greek does work is Greek, it, it values word order. The word that is most emphasized is often the word that occurs first in the sentence. And without an article, the first word in the sentence is God. So it's as if John is saying, the word was God, and he puts it in bold and big letters for it to stand out to us. The lack of the article, I think, is purposeful by John so that we get exactly what he's saying. The eternal, distinct word is God. I dwell on this. One, because this is an issue of theology that is difficult. One, it's an issue of doctrine that's essential, the Trinity. And it's an issue of theology that's complicated that we don't often dwell on. And yet John 1.1 is the supporting material for all of our, it's not the one supporting material, but a significant key verse for our view of Christ and the Trinity. And it's only verses like this that ever get us to worship with words like this. True God of true God, light from light eternal, humbly he enters the virgin's womb. Son of the Father, begotten not created, oh come let us adore him. And when we read complexity like this, that is exactly how we ought to respond, with adoration to the God 
that it is. Let's consider our final point this morning. The eternal word, the distinct word, the divine word, and lastly, the creating word. We see this in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The eternal word works alongside the Father in creation. And this might surprise us, because this seems like new information. Genesis 1.1 says God created, and yet now we have the Son creating, and yet Revelation The revealing of God is unfolding before our eyes as new revelation in the New Testament and the ministry in the wake of Christ comes. And yet it shouldn't surprise us either. Because in the Old Testament, we see these glimpses of God's word being a powerful force that acts as an extension alongside God. This morning, we were called to worship by Psalm 29 that speaks of the voice of the, wor- the, word, the, ver- the voice of the Lord being a powerful agent in creation. Psalm 33 verse six says, the word of, "By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made." And now, in the coming of Christ, the true and final revelation, these shadowy descriptions of the Old Testament are made clear. The lights in the room are turned on and we can see all of the objects as they really are. And we see that all along, God has been Trinity and been working in coordination with himself. That God, the Son, and the Spirit are working together. There's a theological term called inseparable operations, meaning that all three persons of the Trinity are working in an inseparable way with one another in all things. And the, and the Word, the Son, is creating. And this is unanimously attested throughout the New Testament. Again, in Hebrews 1, we hear that the Son upholds the universe by the Word of His power. In Colossians 1, Paul tells us that by him all things were created. The Word created everything. And by nature of his creation, he has rightful claim over everything. Consider this room, the matter that's here, the chairs you're sitting on, the wood constructing this pulpit, the glass that you're looking through in the balcony, all of it created and made by him. But perhaps some of you engineers here are pushing your glasses up saying, well, actually the stuffing in the chairs is a synthetic material that was made. (laughs) Sure, by nature of our being made in the image of God, he is given us the ability to assemble, to engineer, to build, but yet we can't bring into existence. We can't create out of nothing. We are constrained by the law of the conservation of mass. We can't create or destroy matter. We just change its forms. But the one that makes the laws is not bound by them. He can create He can speak out of nothing and bring into existence all that is. And all that is, is his. 
Imagine the entire expanse of the cosmos. Distant galaxies that we're just now being able to take photos of. His. Black holes that I don't even know what they do, but they're scary in movies. They're his. (laughs) Stars and planets. And get this, all the empty space between it all. It's all his. The inhospitable heights of Everest down to the lifeless depths in the Marianas Trench. Lush rainforests in the totally desolate Sahara Desert. Even the unseen forces, like gravity or electricity or magnets, these things that I don't have any understanding of, he made them all. Everything. Every proton, every electron, every bit of dark energy and dark matter and antimatter and whatever else science finds out these days, it doesn't matter because it's all his. He made it. Even the hairs on your head and the freckles on the back of your hand, this eternal word made it all. You are his. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's estimated that every day, 385,000 babies are born. Birth is amazing and beautiful, and yet it's very normal. And so the beauty of this season is not a birth, necessarily. It's the beauty of who was born. John, in these first three verses, pushes us, forces us to dwell, not on the birth itself, but on who it was. This is the substance of Christmas. This is the substance of our hope. The Word was born. Eternal Word was born. And that is something to have awe at. We should have all 365 days a year. But let's take this season to dwell on it and fuel that fire to have awe for 2024. Anselm of Canterbury wrote around 1100 AD, and I think this is a perfect example of what awe looks like. He who is everlasting in the bosom of the Father is conceived in a mother's womb, born from eternity of his father without mother, He is born in time of his mother without father. He who clothed the earth with trees and verdure, who decked the sky with its lamp, who peopled the sea with fishes, lies wrapped in rags. He whom the heaven of heavens cannot hold is confined in a narrow manger. The wisdom, whose wisdom has neither beginning nor end, who is himself the very wisdom of God, grows from less to greater. 
He whose eternity cannot be contracted, even as it cannot be increased, exists by measurement of days and hours. And the primal author of grace grows in grace. This is the reality. But we don't just stand in awe of what happened, but why it happened. The incarnation was a seek and rescue mission. John Piper describes it that way, that Christ came to seek and to save. The Word didn't become, didn't become flesh because all was right. He came to make all things right. We had rejected him as God. He who had rightful authority and claim over every square inch of creation, we said, no, thank you. We do continually evil in our hearts all the time. And the word came to pay for our immeasurable debt. The creator who does all things freely, who is in debt to no one and has no external obligations, came to earth to save sinners. What a confounding and amazing truth. Not only did he come to save, he came to save by his own dying. There is no better picture of grace. There is no better hope for today. And there's nothing else worth celebrating like than that. That's what our hope is. That is the substance that we get. And it can be anyone's if they would put their hope and faith in Christ. This is the stuff that inspires awe. And this is the stuff that inspires better songs. Songs that say things like this. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord, you are eternal, unchanging, and uncreated. And you forever exist in a way far greater than we can begin to comprehend. And you reign and rule over all creations and all of your works are done in faithfulness. Father, we thank you for your great mercy and love in making yourself known. You've not left us ignorant or blind, but you've come. You've condescended in sending your son and may we give him all praise and honor and blessing for as long as we have breath. It's in his name that we pray, amen.